Welcome to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. Stay tuned for an analysis and conversation about the issues that matter most to you and your family. Here now with this week's edition of News in Focus is Chris Long. Happy Independence Day, and we're glad that you've joined us. We are exercising our First Amendment right over the broadcast channel here on News and Focus on this Independence Day, and we hope that you are enjoying uh, this day of independence of our country. And, of course, in just a few years, we're going to be celebrating the 250th anniversary of our country's founding. But uh, we are exercising our First Amendment as we have opportunity to do so over the broadcast channel. With us on the phone is former state senator and former Senate president Larry Oboff, who is a constitutional attorney. And we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court cases that came down, uh, the decisions that were released last week by the court. And there was a number of them that deal with religious liberty. But before we do that, let me read from you, for you, the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a dissent, respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the cause which impel them to the separation." We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Then when any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall most likely to the effect their safety and happiness. And we hope that you will take time to read the Declaration of Independence with your family, your friends. You'll still have time on this Independence Day. Well, with that, we're going to go to the court's decisions last week, which really were monumental for religious liberty. And uh, one who has looked at it, researched it, and broke it down over the weekend for us as to what this actually means for all of us is Larry Oboff. Again, a constitutional attorney, practicing attorney, former Senate president, and uh, we hope that he'll uh, serve again in public service in years to come. We'll see what the Lord has in store for Larry. Uh, but anyways, Larry, welcome to the program. It's great to be here, Chris. Well, thank and, you. Uh, if, if I can, before before we start talking about the, uh, the court decisions, if I can have a couple words about the Declaration of Independence. Please. Um, um, and, and as, as you recall, uh, and, and as some of your listeners may know, uh, the very first bill that I passed as a legislator uh, was the founding documents bill. And, uh, and that actually, Chris, it was you who I think gave me the original idea for that uh, legislation, um, essentially requiring uh, as part of our high school history curriculum uh, for students to read the Declaration and the Constitution, among other documents, uh, you know, read the real documents, not a second or third hand account uh, when they got to that part in their in their history class. And um, 
And and one of the reasons that I'm I'm still very proud of that more than a decade later is because uh, the, the declaration uh, in particular is um, really a watershed in in political thought. And so, um, you know, we think of it in the sense that the declaration essentially kicked off the American Revolution. Um, but it was revolutionary in more ways than one, right? It was, was revolutionary in the literal sense, um, that it marked an important formal milestone as the 13 colonies described themselves as free and independent states. But equally important was the revolution uh, that it started in political philosophy, uh, because, um, as you said, uh, um, uh, some of the most uh, famous words uh, from the Declaration um, tell us about the self-evident truths of liberty and equality. And the Declaration is, is really um, not just a foundational document for our, our country, but, um, again, for all political thought, because it is the first um, widespread document, uh, uh, I believe, that, that got the relationship between the citizen and the state correct, right? If we go back through, through all of human history, um, most places, most times, uh, you have someone at the top, uh, a king, a queen, whoever, um, who has most of the power, and then the citizens or, or the people uh, um, get some residual of whatever government allows them to have. And, and the declaration was really revolutionary because it said, no, that's not the right relationship. The power comes from the people. The power is inherent in all persons. And we'll give the government a little bit of, of responsibility uh, to serve specific functions, but fundamentally, um, it lies with us, um, each of us. Uh, it's inherent in each of us because we were given our rights not by this document or some other document or by the government, but by God. Um, so, anyway, I, I know that was a long. <laughs> that was a long. Well, that there. no, that's right, Larry. In fact, uh, we could spend the entire program talking about the rights of men and of who is king in America. It is the individual, is the individual that has rights before God and that uh, is the sovereign of their own destiny uh, in a representative form of government. And that's what we're celebrating today in, in Independence Day. And uh, our young that's people right. need to understand that and to learn and appreciate this wonderful American Republic and uh, the Founding American Documents curriculum that's been in place now for 12 years uh, since the bill signing. You were there, of course. You were the Senate sponsor. Uh, State Representative John Adams was the House sponsor. It took us 10 years to get it through the legislature. But you actually came up with a great plan to take one full credit hour out of uh, the three uh, of the social studies that were, take one of those full credit hours and divide half of it for American government, half of it for American history with an end-of-course exam, and then really cementing into the pub, uh, public school curriculum the study of American founding in our documents from the 8th through the 12th grade with an end-of-course exam. It still exists. We have to fight for it every couple of years to keep it in there because the right. Liberal Teachers We've Union... we defend it a few times. We have indeed, and we have to be vigilant. The price of liberty is eternal vigilance, and we've had to do that to keep it in place. But it is, it's working. In fact, uh, the uh, grade uh, percentages have risen for Ohio students uh, above their counterparts in other Midwest states because of the founding American documents 
Documents curriculum really does spend the quality time in the classroom uh, on the study of our founding documents, the the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Ohio Constitution, the the Federalist and Anti-Federalist Papers, uh, with an end, of course, exam, and, of course, American government. And, of course, all of that, American history, that has really helped our students. So, really... You know, friend, it's been a great partnership with you. We keep it going, and you've actually had to weigh in and make some calls back down to the state house, even after you've uh, retired your service for the meantime, and remind them that, hey, this is the best course going forward. Don't mess with it. And you know what? There's been a lot of people that have said the same thing. Social studies, national groups have uh, really showcased Ohio and saying, look at the great work that's happening in Ohio. So we want to keep it going. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and just uh, briefly, I, I'd like to reiterate, I, I think it's important for, for students, uh, it's important for the next generation to understand why those documents are so special and why the Declaration in particular is um, and, and why our system of government is special. And it really sets us apart from uh, many of the governments that came before. And it, it does so in a way that protects people's rights, that, uh, that protects both the majority and the minority, um, and that is designed to preserve liberty uh, to the extent possible. So I, I would say that it's, it's not only important for people to understand that um, for the sake of having the historical knowledge, but, but frankly, our system is better than the systems of government that came before. And it's important for people to understand that and understand why it's better. Absolutely. We're talking with uh, Larry Oboff, a constitutional attorney, former Senate president uh, in the Ohio Senate, and one who has reviewed the court of the recent decisions that have come down. But we're going to focus in on specifically the decisions on religious liberty. So, Larry, give us a breakdown of what's happened not just this session, but in the last couple of sessions on religious liberty with the Roberts Court, now obviously bolstered by the conservatives that were added by President Trump. Uh, Of course, the political left is howling over this, but it just goes to show you the divide in this country philosophically of what rights and liberties come uh, from God and are for the individual and not to be encumbered by uh, political leftist interests. And it's it's amazing to me that they would decry the court's decision on these liberty issues of, of equality and justice uh, that there, there there not be a slated hand in these things, but also when it comes to religious liberty, that uh, you cannot force a person to work against their conscience, and that's what some of these decisions were addressing. Uh, break it down for us. Sure. So if you go back over the last uh, two um, court sessions, um, so, the, so the last two years, um, there are uh, about five uh or at least five that, that uh, I think stick out to me, uh, cases that deal with uh, um, religious liberty, um, free exercise clause, uh, free speech clause, um, and, and those types of things. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll try to hit the highlights here on them, but, uh, but the first one uh, is Carson versus Macon. And uh, some listeners might be familiar with the name of that case, that uh, the case was decided last year, and it involved uh, school vouchers and um, whether or not um, vouchers and other public benefits that are generally available um, 
must also be available for for religious institutions, religious people. Um, what we have here is, is the state of Maine uh, has a generally applicable uh, tuition assistance program, uh, and and part of the reason that they have that uh, a widespread, uh, almost universal voucher program is because Maine is a, a large state. Some parts of it are very rural, and they actually have substantial um, uh, areas that, that that do not have any. Uh, public high schools. Uh, and so um, they've decided decades ago that they would provide a, a widespread, generally available tuition assistance program. And somewhere along the line, um, decided that they were not going to allow uh, those uh, vouchers or, or other tuition assistance to be uh, available to students who were going to uh, religious schools. Um, now, uh, it, depending on who you ask, I would say the Supreme Court already decided this issue uh, with the Zellman case from from here in Ohio in 2002. Uh, but uh, but I think also was was right on point in 2020 in another case called Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue, where where they made it pretty clear that um, uh, generally available uh, uh, services, generally available benefits. Uh, uh, are not suddenly unavailable just because a religious organization might uh, receive some benefit from that. Um, but uh, but here you had Maine continuing to deny uh, the tuition assistance to uh, the students going to certain schools, and uh, and you even have the appellate court uh, siding with the state. So they they had to go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and um, the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, said essentially that the free exercise clause uh, protects uh, these institutions and the people who want to go there. And if you have a generally available public benefit, um, then it has to actually be generally available. It can't discriminate uh, against uh, uh, people who want to send their their children to religious institutions. Well, um, so that was... <laughs> go ahead, Chris. Well, I was going to say that uh, how long did it take this case? This was uh, the the decision of 2022. How long did it take this case to work its way up to the Supreme Court, Larry? What's your guess there? So, so, so it was it was it took a couple of years. Um, and really, in Maine, the problem has gone back and forth for quite a while. And so, um, it, it's one of the interesting things about this. And I, I was going to get to this point later, but but I'll bring it up now. I think some of these cases might be. Um, at least in part in the lower courts, uh, stem from good faith disagreements about what the law is. Uh, but some of them, I think, are less uh, less so. And so, for example, the requirement in Maine uh, occurred, uh, the limitation on, on religious institutions uh, uh, first occurred uh, because a legislator wanted to um, uh, prohibit this. Uh, so the legislator reached out to the Maine Attorney General and asked the Maine Attorney General for an opinion on whether or not this uh, violated the Establishment Clause. So then the Attorney General provided the opinion that it did. So then the legislators said, oh, no, we've got to fix this problem. It violates the Establishment Clause. So, you know, it, 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 it was very circular um, in its origins. Um, and uh, and, and with this particular litigation, it took a few years. The, the Espinoza case was decided in the meantime. Um, so the, the First Circuit uh, was aware uh, that uh, the Supreme Court had just ruled uh, that um, you could not deny uh, benefits to an, an organization uh, merely because of its religious status. 
So what they tried to do was parse the words and say, well, we're not denying money because of the these schools' religious status as religious institutions. We're denying it because they might use some of that money for religious instruction. Um, and I, I think that most most lawyers I know who would look at that, uh, or at least some lawyers, and I was one of them, would say, well, that's a distinction without a difference. The Supreme Court was asked this question and answered it already. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you have uh, you have policymakers or, or courts looking for particular outcomes, and they find a way to, you know, Courts are very good at drawing distinctions and distinguishing cases uh, from each other that, that look like they're factually you know, similar enough. Well, and I, and I think that this case is going to help Ohio because we have just passed, we're about to pass, uh, universal vouchers here in the state of Ohio, so there will be a large expansion, in fact, historic expansion of school choice in Ohio. So this case will pay dividends going forward. But I want to move ahead to the Kennedy sure. Bremerton case. This is the football coach that was fired for saying a silent prayer after games at the 50-yard line. In this case, it, we've okay. heard about it, and it's kind of worked its way through. This, all, again, was decided in the 2022 uh, session. I know we're building on something here. We're going to get to what was came down last week, but tell us about a little bit about this case as well with the coach that was uh, fired for praying the silent prayer at the 50-yard line and what the Supreme Court stated. Sure. So so you, you just sort of gave the facts already, and, and for anyone who's not familiar, Coach Kennedy is a, a football coach. Uh, um, after games were over, uh, would go to the 50-yard line uh, to kneel and, and say a silent prayer. Um, did not require his students to do it. Uh, did this uh, essentially uh, on, on his own volition. And, uh, and uh, the lower courts um, uh, essentially uh, viewed this as an establishment of religion, a, a violation of the Establishment Clause, saying that, that by him doing this, this suggests that the, uh, the school district is sending an official message um, what the uh, what the U.S. Supreme Court said was that um, uh, restricting him uh, from doing this um, on his own volition after a game was over violated his free exercise of religion uh, and violated the free speech clause. Uh, stopped him from being able to to do what he wanted to do and say what he wanted to say. And 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 the court said. Um, it was pretty clear that this prayer was private, uh, that it wasn't government-compelled speech, that it wasn't pursuant to his official duties, and that, uh, and that the mere fact that he was a, a government employee um, doesn't prevent him from also being able to exercise his constitutional rights uh, separate from his official duties. Um, so that was, a, that was a significant case that came out last year. Um, and then... Uh, there was another case uh, last year as well um, called Shirtless versus Boston, uh, which was unanimously decided. Um, uh, and this uh, this was an interesting case involving, um, I guess you could say, a public forum uh, that the city of Boston uh, allowed uh, one of the city's flagpoles uh, historically to be used to display uh, flags for a number of different groups. Uh, um, uh, over a number of years, uh, I think it was used hundreds of times without any group being rejected. Um, that included, you know, the flying of uh, foreign uh, flags, uh, the LGBT uh, flag, uh, Juneteenth uh, flag, uh, um, different associations using theirs. 
Um, but for the first time, they, they rejected one because it had a Latin cross on it. Um, and, and the city claimed essentially that, that flying this flag would violate the Establishment Clause, that, that people might uh, construe it as the city endorsing religion. Um, but, you know, Boston didn't, as a city, actively control the flag raisings or shape the messages that the flag sent. Uh, again, they had allowed a wide variety of these to be used before, and, uh, and the Supreme Court unanimously held that, uh, that the city violated uh, the plaintiff's free speech um, because if you're going to allow something like that to happen generally, um, you can't just come back one day and say, oh, except for you because your, your flag is religious or I think that your flag is religious. So, so the first 200 of these were fine, but, but not yours. Um, that once you've created a forum like that, um, essentially, you have to treat everyone equally. We're talking with Larry Oboff. He is a constitutional attorney, and we're breaking down the court's decision on religious liberty and First Amendment issues. Now, Larry, I want to jump to 2023. This is just last week. Sure. The court made a series of decisions. We have about four and a half minutes left here in this segment. Okay. So let's go to the Geoff and DeJoy uh, decision last week with the Postal Service uh, employee. Tell us about that case. Sure. So, uh, so Groff versus DeJoy um, was actually not a constitutional case necessarily. It, it involved uh, um, Title VII uh, and 1972 amendments to the 1964 Civil Rights Act uh, that, that are found within Title VII. Um, here we have someone who was working for the U.S. Postal Service um, and uh, celebrated the Sabbath, and uh, and because of that, uh, um, does not uh, did not want to work on Sundays, uh, and, um, and, and wasn't required to when he began working for the Postal Service. And, and sometime thereafter, uh, they made an agreement with Amazon to increase Sunday deliveries, and he was essentially told, um, you, need to, you need to start working on the Sabbath or you need to find other people to, uh, to take your place. And um, when you take a look at you know, again, Title Seven, our civil rights laws. Well, 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 by the way, by the way, just in that, that would have been a burden on him. It's not for him to find somebody to take his place. He's exercising his First Amendment uh, right. He doesn't want to work on Sundays because of religious uh, reasons. He's observing the Sabbath. It's not incumbent upon him to find his replacement. That's their problem if they want to do deliveries on Sunday. But go ahead. I digress. <laughs> Well, and again, he was hired under under uh, different uh, circumstances, right, where they weren't doing that. Um, so it's not like he went to a job where they were requiring he was part of the job to work on the Sabbath. And then uh, at the front end, um, you misled them in some way or, or agreed to do that and then changed your mind. Here's somebody who was already working for a government agency um, who was just told one day, hey, now you've got to work on the Sabbath. And uh, and he was disciplined a number of times uh, over the years. Oh, that that's ridiculous! See, that's ridiculous. And I have long held, okay, as a Christian pastor now for over forty years, I have told people you don't have to work on Sunday. You can exercise your First Amendment right, and also the Civil Rights Code backs you up on this. I'll I'll win that case all day long, okay? I know that they're persecuting, but quite honestly, they can't force people to work on, uh, against their religious conscience on Sunday if that's their day of worship. Well, and that's why I think you saw the uh, the Supreme Court side with him unanimously. The the question in the case was, uh, um, 
Um, under the civil rights laws, the, the employers are required to make reasonable accommodations. And one of the exceptions for the accommodations is if it causes undue hardship on the employer. And uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, many years ago, uh, interpreted that uh, differently than I would, certainly, and uh, and counted undue hardship, uh, uh, the things that qualified as undue hardship, uh, as, as much lower, almost a de minimis requirement that the employer or some other employees are impacted in some way. And um, so the question before the court now was, okay, was that interpretation of the law right, or, or does undue hardship actually mean what it says? And you know, a unanimous court uh, uh, said that uh, said that it means what it says. They said, um, in order to prove an undue hardship, you have to show a substantial burden on the employer, and there wasn't a substantial burden here. The the postal service's business is not going to rise or fall based on whether um, Mr. Groff works on the Sabbath or not. Right, uh, right. Well, and again, uh, so. exercising our First Amendment rights. We've run out of time, Larry. It goes that quick. So we're going to have to have you back to talk more about this. Uh, Larry Oboff, constitutional attorney, thank you for helping us celebrate Independence Day and with these decisions from the state, uh, U.S. Supreme Court on religious liberty. Thank you so much. Well, thank, thank you for having me on, and happy Independence Day to everyone. God bless you, my friend. Yes, happy Independence Day. Well, uh, thank you for listening. If you missed any of today's program, you can hear it in its entirety on our website at ohioca.org. In the Army National Guard, soldiers serve part-time and close to home. My community means everything to me. It helped shape me into who I am today and is where I choose to raise my own family. That's why I joined the Army National Guard. I'm proud of where I'm from. And as a soldier, I get to give back to the people that helped me succeed. The education benefits I got from serving helped me get my degree and jumpstart my career. The training and leadership skills I've gained from the Army National Guard help me every day when I teach young people, help my neighbors, and look out for my community. I know that when my neighbors need us the most, my fellow soldiers and I will be ready. My family loves it here, and my part-time service means we get to stay here. Serve part-time in the community you live in as a proud member of the Army National Guard. Talk to your local recruiter or visit NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Ohio Army National Guard. Aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. I'm Johnette Cruz, and I'm a busy mom. Then a friend told me about TrustBlueReview.com, a new website powered by the Christian Blue Network. She uses it to find trusted Christian-owned businesses. I checked it out, read the helpful reviews, and found a great family dentist. Now I use TrustBlueReview for all my family's needs. For peace of mind, do what I did. Visit TrustBlueReview.com or download their free mobile app from your app store today. The trusted source for all you do. Trust Blue Review. Will my kids like this dentist? Can I trust this mechanic? Who's a good choice for my upcoming remodel? I found businesses I can trust from TrustBlueReview.com. This company rebuilt our deck and renovated our bathroom. I'd highly recommend them to anyone looking to hire an honest contractor. The best dentist experience I've ever had. It's now easy to find trusted businesses in my community that have the same Christian values as my family. It all starts at TrustBlueReview.com or download their app in the App Store today. The trusted source for all you do. Trust Blue Review. 
Okay, and if you just missed our segment with uh, former state Senator Larry Oboff, uh, you can hear it in its entirety at our website at ohioca.org. Also, uh, News and Focus is broadcast 7 p.m. on Tuesday evenings, 1.30 uh, p.m. in the afternoon uh, on Wednesdays, and again, 5 p.m. on Fridays if you want to uh, hear the rest of the program. But I want to uh, share, just before we get to our next guest, uh, Greg Lawson of the Buckeye Institute will be talking about the budget this segment. But one of the things that we wanted to talk about, but ran out of time, the creative verse Ellenist decision that came down last week by the U.S. Supreme Court. This was all about creative content. Uh, it was a web des- designer and developer in the state of Colorado, and a, and a homosexual couple was wanting them to create um, design and development material from their uh, creative uh, web design work and then was suing them because they weren't doing this. They said, well, that's against our Christian beliefs. And that went all the way to the Supreme Court in a 6-3 opinion, 6-3 decision in favor of uh, Creative, which is the uh, Christian group. The court held that the First Amendment prohibits the state of Colorado from forcing a web designer to create expensive designs, expressive designs, excuse me, uh, which uh, the message which she disagrees with, okay? In one hand, these victories suggest a bunch of wins for religious liberty. On the other hand, the fact that th- that five cases like these uh, on religious liberty liberty ended up before the U.S. Supreme Court in the last eighteen month window suggests that government intrusion uh, our religious liberty is widespread. And I would agree with Larry Oboff on that. Uh, where these decisions are very encouraging because we have a conservative court currently, which the political left is really going off on. Uh, folks, we need to support our U.S. Supreme Court and um, and fight back against the political left. And thanks to uh, President Trump for making three appointments when he was just there for four years. And the court is definitely uh, leans to the right and conservative and supports our constitutional rights and privileges. But again, here's another good decision saying the state of Colorado cannot force someone against their religious conscience and and um, person to do that which is against their conscience in making creative uh, content. And the state of Colorado was basically going to shut them down. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court held up that individual's rights. They don't have to create things that they think is goes against their conscience. So a very big decision, and that was, again, the Creative Verse Ellenis 2000. Uh, 23 decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. We're going to have some of these links up on our website as well so you can see the uh, decision by the court. But again, these are great victories for religious liberty, but the concern is look how many cases are coming before the U.S. Supreme Court because down in the lower courts and on the state and local level, religious liberty is under assault. Well, that's something we need to just continue to be in prayer about and also fight for and stand for our our. Uh, rights and privileges that we have in a representative form of government with our Constitution. And of course, today we're celebrating Independence Day, uh, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, and uh, we we have that liberty, and we're going to exercise it. Well, continuing with us on our program is Greg Lawson, who is a research fellow at the Buckeye Institute. We're going to break down the budget and actually find a status of where we're at right now. The budget should have been done by June 30th by law, but I do believe that they uh, voted for an extension, and so the, the budget debate will continue in July, and here to break it down for us is our good friend Greg Lawson of the Buckeye Institute. Greg, welcome to the program. 
Well, thank you very much, Chris. And first and foremost, happy Fourth of July. Uh, happy Independence Day. It's really an honor to be on. And I, I was listening in, and it was an honor to be on with uh, former Senate President uh, Obhoff, who does a wonderful job of breaking down those uh, Supreme Court cases. He sure does, and uh, you know, I wish we had more time with him because he really has so much material and content. We'll have him back on. But, Greg, uh, thank you for getting back at it. I know that uh, you uh, just came back from a funeral of a family member that passed away, and our prayers and thoughts are with uh, continue with your family uh, and uh, for you, my good friend. But uh, you're back at it at the State House. Tell us what's happening with the budget uh, because— uh, it seems as if uh, we're in a little bit of an impasse hill here. Uh, am I right about that, or what's the status? Well, actually, we're we're in we're actually in a good place. Uh, so we're actually there was a lot of fear about that because uh, it looked like the budget might not get done on time, and that they would have to do an extension in order to continue negotiating. However, that is ultimately and fortunately not exactly what happened. They have all come to an agreement. Uh, both the House uh, and the Senate did pass. Uh, a, it basically, the budget went out of the conference committee on Friday. They ran it through conference committee. It passed out of the conference committee, and then it passed both uh, floors of both chambers on Friday. Now, what they had to do, and this is where it gets a little quirky, because of some of the logistical and technical aspects of how you uh, get the bill into the governor's hand and to give the governor uh, enough time to be able to review the budget, they passed a three-day extension in another piece of legislation that passed both chambers also on Friday and went into effect immediately. So technically, the governor has until, I believe, midnight uh, uh, it, it, it would be able to find it uh, on, on Monday. So this is just a three-day extension, right? Yes. So the budget... Uh, is is uh, now we don't know what the governor is going to do in terms of line item vetoes as of present, but uh, the budget is out of the hands of the general assembly now. Are uh, so okay? The three day extension. I don't understand. Are you saying that the budget is passed and that uh, it's before the governor, or what's the? Ex- I don't understand. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, it is. Yeah, that is correct. You are correct. It, it, it is in front of the governor now. What happened was they have passed it. The legislature is done with it. But because they didn't pass it until, like, 6 or 7 o'clock on Friday, the 30th, they were going to run out of time in order for it to get transmitted to the governor and for the governor to review it and for the governor to sign it. So they passed a three-day extension that ran it through the end of the day Monday, uh, which is a flat funding of the state so that the state didn't shut down, government didn't shut down. And then they had a three-day, that temporary or that three-day extension so the governor would sign it uh, by the end of Monday. So I did uh, see they, some coverage of this uh, in the local uh, television station uh, on Saturday, and um, I did see that they were talking about some of the provisions that are in the budget. So you're telling me that the budget that you and I discussed that was being proposed by the Senate and the House, so was the, the House then pretty much a concurrence then on the Senate version? What happened here? Sure. Uh, there was some back and forth, and there was uh, a number of things that were negotiated, and so there were some changes uh, from the Senate version. But I would say that on balance, uh, the Senate, uh, most many of the provisions that were in the Senate version of the budget remain. Now, uh, but there are some changes. There were some things that were done in the conference committee uh, that were a little different. We can go kind of go through that. Uh, the biggest 
two changes. Was there any uh, amendments on the floor that were adopted? Not on the floor, no. Once it came out of conference committee, that was it. That is what they passed. That's shocking because there, normally there would have been amendments presented by both the political left and the political right in the House. Well, I don't understand what happened here. This is weird, well, <laughs> to be honest oh, with you. No, no. They, 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 there, were some, there were definitely amendments proposed in the conference committee. So how would a legislator propose an amendment? Does that have to go through the speaker, through the chair, or how is that done if once yeah. it's in conference? Yeah, if a, if a member wanted to do something, they would have had to have worked with leadership. And oh, the brother. Members of the conference committee. And so there were six members of the conference committee. Uh, basically, it was the chairman and the vice chairman of the two, uh, the House Finance and the Senate Finance Committees. And then it was the ranking uh, Democrat member from both of the finance committees. Uh, actually, I think... The well, there. okay, let, let me just hit a couple of uh, points here. So there was some real concern about reassessment of uh, property values, and I'm hearing, you know, that it could have gone up by 30%, you know, that they were going to use last year's models of where uh, housing really skyrocketed in cost. It's not an actual, but it was uh, market-driven. It's not real. And that uh, there was discussion, shouldn't it be aggregated over a three-year period rather than just last year's spike in housing prices? You you know, communities, I mean, uh, homeowners would be hit hard with that. So what happened with that provision, Greg? Uh, That provision actually got retained. So both chambers were working on that now. This is actually a really complicated issue that we're going to be talking about, I think, for some time and well beyond just the budget. Um, but in order to avoid those kind of spikes, and that is happening all around the state, uh, you're absolutely right. And it is really bad for fixed income uh, folks, especially retirees. It is a, you know, you can own your house outright, but then the property taxes spike and you get priced out of your house. So it's a real challenge. But the provision that you just described about not looking at it in just one year, uh, that did make it into the budget, and that will. Uh, there's still going to be tax increases. I don't think there's any. So it's going, yeah, tax. but it's going to be over a three-year period, not just last year when it spiked, right? That's right. It's going to mitigate the the amount of the spike. But it's but again, like you say, it's over a three-year period, and even with last year's spike, which is quite honestly not a reality, but it was an inflationary rise, and uh, that's going to hit families and people on fixed incomes hard with local taxes going up. It absolutely is. And this is actually, uh, you know, at some point I'd love to do a whole show on just this issue because this is something that I've been working on ever since I joined. the. Do you think that that could be a line item veto by the governor? Is that possible? I, I think anything is possible, but I have not necessarily heard that that is something he would be inclined to do. I'd be a little surprised if he did. Uh, because wouldn't it be better to do it over a, a four-year period, maybe, that would lessen the blow? Well, uh, I mean, that was certainly going to be a conversation. The problem you've got is you've got the back and forth. And, I mean, the one thing you have to always, at the state house, local governments, you know, every local government organization, the cities, the townships, the counties, schools, certainly, they all have their own organizations and lobbying organizations. Uh, I, and I, yeah, don't get me started on that. Uh, that's what, yeah, they get a windfall from this. But but for the, the folks out there that are listening right now and saying, what's my property taxes going to look like? Well, uh, hold on uh, to, to the rafters there, folks, because there's going to be a spike here. 
And we're talking about a Republican-dominated legislature, legislature with a Republican governor. Don't talk to me about raising my property taxes, you know, uh, you know, people are thinking as they're listening, right? Um, shouldn't it be over a four- or five-year period? I, I, quite honestly, if I'm the governor, uh, this is not a time to put that in as a fix. This is a time to line out and veto that, send them back to the table, and have more of an adult conversation about this. Your thoughts? Uh, well, I, 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 I'm not sure exactly. The, the, I, I don't know. I think what they've been working on is kind of where they had landed to try to mitigate it. I definitely understand, but the problem is they're going to get the pushback from the other government, which I know what your perspective is on that. So I'm not sure that they can actually get that deal, so that they will do it for longer. So I think one of the hard questions is, is this, so to speak, but doesn't that hand? sound? Uh, but that, but doesn't that make the governor sound contradictive? I mean, here he states at the State of the Union address. Excuse me, State of the State address, and I was there, by the way, on the floor. <laughs> I heard it. We got to make housing more affordable for Ohioans. We've got to provide. You know, uh, working with banking institutions and, uh, you know, and this program that they were going to launch to make it easier for young people, uh, you know, to buy a home. Well, what about our elderly staying in their homes? I mean, you, you can't. I mean, come on, Gov. I mean, you know, don't be pushing out uh, grandma when you're trying to uh, give this uh, beneficial program. On the other hand, and yet these communities are uh, saying we want more funding. I I don't un- understand it, Greg. I mean, I don't think conservatives should be laying back on this one. Your thoughts? Well, I think the big question is we need to do something about local government. I mean, the problem that we've got here is whatever they do, no matter whether they do a three, whether they left alone, they did the three year look back, or even if they did, you know, the five year thing. These are all band-aids for a larger issue, uh, and this is the issue of how local government operates in the state of Ohio. And this has been something I've worked on against. I joined the Buckeye Institute. My first, actually, my first report. For the I know this has been a long time discussion of how much we have too much local organization of city corporated government, township and city corporated government throughout the state. I think we have more corporate uh, organized government in the in uh, this state than anybody else in the midwest am i right about that uh pennsylvania might have more but 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 what we do is we do it worse than any other state that's the real thing is we have municipal income tax we have the ability for a lot of different sorts of things uh uh, different uh like uh libraries zoos uh conservate water conservation district you name it a lot of people have separate authority to go to the ballot and seek levies so you have tons of levies. Every property in Ohio probably has 50 to 60 different levies on it uh, for that have been around. Some of them are the, when you think about a levy, you know, you're thinking about the school levy or the fire levy, safety levy, what have you, maybe senior services or, or children's services, and, and all. And then you have to go back and renew them. Those, but there's a lot of levies that are what they call permanent levies that have been put on the properties decades ago, and those never roll off. Those are never even up for being voted on again. So you've got permanent levies, and you've got all these other ones. It's a real, it's a real uh, mess. It's a labyrinth of, of complexity. And the bottom line is, if we don't get a better grip on how we deliver services at the local level, they're going to keep taxing at the local level because that's they get a lot of money from the, lo- the local entities. Uh, their lion's share of what they get is it, it is. Local it's a, uh, well, we could do a program on that. So. We're going to have to set that aside because we got we got some great things in the budget we're going to have to talk about. So let's we only have about nine minutes left here. Let's talk about the universal 
uh, historic, if I'm not mistaken, expansion of school choice in the state of Ohio. Tell us about that in the budget. Uh, I'd say it's the best uh, school choice budget in the state of Ohio history. Uh, and there have been some other big moves in the past, and there's a lot of people who, who deserve a lot of credit here, but I think uh, this is a universal ed choice. The current voucher program we have is now being made to be universal. Anybody in Ohio will be able to get a voucher. Now, there's a little nuance here. Anybody who makes up to 450% of the poverty guideline, uh, if that family gets it in a family of four, that's about $130,000 or so is about what 450% would be. They would get the full amount of the Ed Choice voucher. And by the way, that amount of the voucher is going up this year because the, the way that they calculate the voucher is based on the school funding formula. And the school funding formula is going up. So every school, every school, public uh, school in the state is getting more money per student. So the voucher amounts are going up. Everybody at 450 and below gets the full voucher. Now, if you make more than that, uh, then there is a sliding scale where it uh, drops off to you get like 10% of the voucher. But everybody, so if you're like a millionaire or something like that, you would still get at least a little bit uh, of a voucher. So everybody has access to a voucher now in the state of Ohio, but it does have a sliding scale when you get above that 450% level. But if you think about the number of families in Ohio, the, uh, most families, probably 75 to 80% of families would fall within that up to 450%. So uh, most families will be able to get a full voucher. And again, the only ones that wouldn't uh, get the full voucher uh, would be those that are, uh, I guess you might say, a little bit better off uh, economically. Now, at the so same time, the they did give they did give public schools funding as well. To explain that, they did. They did. They increased the funding uh, without going into it. It's an incredibly complicated uh, formula. We just changed how we do school funding in the last budget, so they changed the way they calculate it, uh, and so they uh, have kept a good chunk, most of that uh, funding formula. That is actually one of the things where there was a divergence between the Senate and the House. And on that particular question, the House uh, actually prevailed over the Senate and the conference committee. And so uh, they're basically increasing the amount uh, fairly substantially uh, uh, as well for every school. Now, the thing that I find very frustrating is even though you've got uh, the public schools are getting more money, you still got this coalition out there that's suing the state to try to destroy vouchers, which is, uh, I think, unconscionable uh, what these folks are doing out there because it's public schools uh, complaining that they're not getting even more money. But they're getting historic levels of investment in this budget. It's, it's simply not true to say that they're not getting funded because they're getting funded better than they've ever been funded in the history of the state. Uh, now, you know, a lot of the reason we were able to do some of this, by the way, there's a big tax cut in the budget as well. So you have universal vouchers and you have one of the largest tax cuts uh, in state of Ohio history as well. It is also in there. They're actually going to be moving towards a much flatter income tax. They're going to drop Ohio to only having two brackets now. Uh, so that is a pretty substantial change uh, in Ohio. When you think about about 20 years ago, Ohio had eight or nine brackets, and now we're going to have two. Uh, so it's been a really big uh, reform uh, that's been happening there. So from our perspective, we look at the tax policy and certainly the school choice policy, which is incredible. Uh, and I think, you know, the governor deserves credit for this. He came out with a big expansion of, of Ed Choice in his initial budget. The House actually increased it 
and the Senate under uh, President Huffman did a great job. They said, we're going to make it universal, and they did it. And that was um, uh, Senator O'Brien who actually introduced that bill. I think that's uh, what they modeled it after. I had her on the program here earlier in the year, and it was their, her bill that was universal uh, voucher system. I think that they modeled their Senate version after. Is that correct? It was very influential in how they set this whole thing up. Yes, Senator O'Brien did a wonderful job. Uh, Senator Brenner, who's the education chairman. Yes. Big winner. Uh, Senate, and, and look, you know, chairman, the chairman of the finance committee, Matt Dolan, uh, did a good job with this. He shepherded this thing through, said we're going to do it. They did it. Uh, and, and President Hoffman, uh, as I mentioned, uh, he's long been known for being a big uh, advocate for school choice. And uh, he, he certainly was here, too. The Senate as a whole really uh, stepped it up. Um, I do think the governor and the House deserve credit. They, they took a they, they did move the ball forward, but the Senate uh, really uh, finished the deal and did what needed to be done. And I think what's really important about this, too, is this couldn't come at a more important time. Uh, we know all the issues that are going on in our public schools. Um, by doing this, we are giving people the opportunity to make the decision that works best for their individual. Amen. That is what Amen. About. That's what this budget will allow people to do. That's right. Absolutely, folks. On this Independence Day, we're telling you about a school voucher program for all of Ohio's school children. Think about that. You'll be able to benefit from it. This is in the new Ohio budget that the governor is going to sign in the next few days as we come out of the Independence Weekend. Uh, the governor is going to sign this bill. So this is going to be big news of school vouchers. We're going to see new classical education uh, schools birthed in Ohio. I know they're planning one here and working on it. Uh, they're doing a national search right now for a chancellor for the school. They're getting teachers and a building lined up. I think they bought a building in Hinkley, and uh, it's going to be uh, a big deal. This is classical education. This is what we're to- going back to with the fundamentals of teaching and, and uh, studying the classics. And a number of these schools, like Hillsdale College, uh, is actually helping to foster a lot of these new schools that are getting birthed uh, in the state of Ohio, this is going to bode well for that movement. We're going to see a lot of progress over the next five years. You're going to see a lot of new educational choice in the state of Ohio. Uh, We're talking with Greg Lawson of the Buckeye Institute. So this is a big uh, news out of the Ohio State House on this budget. Uh, Greg, also there was uh, tax cuts. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about tax cuts? We've talked about the possible increase on the local level with uh, real estate taxes possibly going up because it's time to reassess and uh, the way that they're going to do that. But tell us about some of the uh, tax cuts that are in the in the budget as well. Yeah, they they're they're dropping uh, they're they're dropping us to two brackets. Now we had uh, we have four currently. So under this uh, the, the new budget, we will drop to two to two income tax brackets, a uh, a uh, rate of three. Uh, hang on a second. Uh, uh, the, the lowest rate is going to be at uh, two point seven five, I believe, uh, and then the highest rate I think is three five. I actually need to double check that. I just realized I had a, bra- a little brain issue there. I forgot which the two rates were right off the top of my head there, but uh, but it's two brackets, big tax cut. They've also done something, and this is an important thing that for a lot of businesses out there, especially small businesses and mom and pop businesses, uh, there's a thing called the commercial activity tax. That's right. Yeah, and that every every business has to uh, that does does business in Ohio has to sign up for this, and there is a threshold. Uh, where there's a minimum, there's a tax that you have to pay uh, 
a minimal several hundred dollars uh, threshold. Then above that, you have to actually pay on every receipt that you do. It's a very complicated kind of, it's a little bit of a complex fact. Bottom line is, they're dropping a lot of people off of that by raising the threshold. So you're going to have probably close to 80% of businesses in Ohio on, and, and of those, mostly small and mid-sized businesses, that now won't have to pay the commercial activity tax either. And so you get the income tax and you get that tax, which is better, not just for the big guys, but for, you know, again, uh, the, the regular kind of businesses that line up, you know, all of our main streets. Uh, that's that's correct. Great. We've run out of time. Greg, that's great news, though, in the budget. So, again, that's Greg Lawson, the Buckeye Institute. We'll have some information, their link on our website. You can learn more. This is uh, Chris Long. Happy Independence Day, and God bless you. You have been listening to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. To learn more about the issues that matter most to you and your family, visit online at ohioca.org. That's ohioca.org. Thank you for listening. This program is sponsored by the Ohio Christian Alliance of Akron, Ohio.